Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and believe it or not, this morning we are covering the entire chapter. So it's going to be a long Sunday, <laughs> but full of joy, full of joy. Go ahead and cancel your lunch plans. Uh, I'm just kidding. It's, of course, a wonderful chapter. It's a long chapter, it's 48 verses, and this morning we're going to try to cover all of it in one sermon. So I won't be reading every single verse, uh, as you might anticipate. In Psalm 86, verse 9, David says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In his exposition of this psalm, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said these words, and I quote, David was not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse, and that the dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Neither do we expect it to be so, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all the lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship Thee alone, O God, and shall glorify Your name. Then Spurgeon continues and says, The modern pessimistic notion has greatly damned the zeal of the church for missions. And the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God, end quote. I don't know about you, but I have a hope, brothers and sisters, a hope like the one Spurgeon spoke about. What is that hope? That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But as you know, this hope is rooted in faith. Thus, this is no mere wishful thinking or a cheap form of humanistic optimism. Far from it. My hope has never been in men. If that were the case, my hope would have died a long, long time ago. Rather, I have a faith-filled hope rooted in the faithfulness of God, informed by the cross and the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus, and fueled by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, all of which is intimately connected to an ancient promise. To Abraham, God said, In you shall all the families of the earth, how many families? All the families of the earth be blessed. Faith, brothers and sisters, faith that is biblically informed says that this will be so. This will be so. In fact, Abraham left everything and walked by faith, believing what God had said to him, even against all the evidence that might have convinced him otherwise. He was very old. And yet from him, out of him, all the nations would be blessed. Why do I say all this? Well, because Acts chapter 10 shows us the first fruits of the worldwide redemptive plan of God, which was initiated with the patriarch Abraham. What Abraham could only dream of thousands of years earlier 
What he only saw from afar is now unfolding right in front of the apostles' eyes. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful to his promises. And the passing of time cannot annul what he has committed himself to do. The promises were given to the patriarchs. The fulfillment took place in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the application was given through the ministry of the apostles whom God filled with his Holy Spirit to empower them for the task. And even though Peter is more formally known as the apostle to the Jews, God will use him in this chapter to bring the saving message to the Gentile or the non-Jewish world, thus giving commencement to this worldwide Abrahamic blessing. And that's the background to the story of Cornelius. Cornelius, the first Gentile to come into the church. Now, before this happens, a major shift must take place in both Cornelius' and Peter's thinking, both of whom represent a way of thinking that is almost diametrically opposed, one a Jew and the other one a Gentile. So let us consider our first point. How is it that God brought these two worlds together as the power of the resurrection continues to be unleashed in the world? This is a very historic moment, my brothers and sisters. So first we begin in verses 1 through 16 with the perplexing visions, perplexing visions. First we are introduced to Cornelius in verses 1 through 8. And the Bible says in verse 1 that Cornelius was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort or a regiment. This would have been made up of approximately 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers. So as a centurion, he was in charge of how many of those 600? 50, who said, who said 20? 100, 100. So Cornelius was in charge of 100 soldiers. This means that Cornelius was a man of military power and military influence. But more importantly we are told that he was a God-fearer. Now, this category of people are very unique. These are the ones who had come to believe or understand something of the God of the Jews, but they were not circumcised. They were not circumcised. So they were Gentiles, but they believed in this Jewish religion and the Jewish conception of God. So Cornelius could participate in certain rites of the Jewish religion, but only from afar, only from afar. You can already see that this is a very unique person, unlike the more pagan Romans. In fact, if you read in verse 22 of Acts 10, it explicitly says that Cornelius was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. A very unique title, a very unique description for a Gentile. Moreover, he is described in very lofty terms. The Bible says that he was very generous in giving alms and he prayed continually to God. That is a very interesting statement and is going to help us understand a few things about him. And I will say more about that at the end. Verse 4 says that his alms and prayers came as a memorial to God. So let me ask you this. Was Cornelius... Born again and just needed a bit more instruction? 
or was he unsaved and needed to be born again? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. The angel told him in verse 5, what is the vision? What is that the angel said? Send men to Joppa and bring one called who is, I'm sorry, Simon, who is called Peter. Let me paraphrase the vision. If you're following the notes, here is the paraphrase. Here's the summary of the vision of Cornelius. You need to hear the apostolic message. Bring Peter. That is what Cornelius heard from the angel. That's a summary of his vision. You need to hear the apostolic message. Bring Peter. Cornelius, you need something you don't have. A message. Why did Cornelius need this? The answer is given later on in chapter 11, verse 14. You can read it with me if you want. Here's what the angel told Cornelius in a bit more detail. This is what the angel told him. Cornelius, you need Peter because he, meaning Peter, will declare to you, Cornelius, a message by which you will be what? Future. A message by which you will be saved, you and your household. That matters, brothers and sisters, for our story. This means that as devout and as generous as Cornelius was, he still lacked the main thing, salvation. Undoubtedly, Cornelius was being moved by the Spirit toward salvation, but he was not saved prior to Peter's message. Very important, critical note. No gospel, no salvation. No gospel, no salvation. In fact, this story proves that point beyond a shadow of doubt. But Cornelius was looking for God. Why? I think the answer, based on the vision itself, is that God was already looking for him. Hence, the vision given to Cornelius. God was about to save him. Now, as we move to consider Peter's vision... We must keep in mind the enormous divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Cornelius, remember, he was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile. He did not belong to the Jewish, to the Jewish people of God. Granted, he was in a much better place than most other pagan Gentiles, but he was still a Gentile. A Gentile. Jews had no dealings with the Gentiles. So Peter will also need some major help to overcome a deeply ingrained Jewish notion, namely that the Gentiles are what? Unclean. Unclean. This, brothers and sisters, was a real barrier. So we see next how God overcame this massive barrier, this tall social and religious wall in Peter's thinking in verses 9 through 16. Now, many things had already taken place in Peter's ministry to help him get to this moment. First, consider with me, he was an eyewitness to Pentecost, important moment. He saw the Spirit of God descend. He had seen many Jewish people believe in Christ. On top of that, Peter also saw the Hellenist, the Hellenist, the Greek-speaking Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. And as if that were not enough, Peter later saw the Samaritans come to faith in the gospel. 
And he saw it with his own eyes. Remember that he went to Samaria to confirm that this was indeed the case, that the Samaritans had believed in the gospel and had received the Spirit. So think about it. The Jews, the Hellenists, and the Samaritans had come to faith in Jesus. Peter witnessed all of this. From Peter's perspective, God had already been moving in a saving way, way beyond the confines of Jerusalem proper. But that's not all. Notice with whom Peter stayed in Joppa, according to chapter 9, verse 43. Who did he stay with? Simon, a what? A tanner. That's an interesting point. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Acts, pointed out that this is an important point because the business of a tanner was to work with leather. Work with leather which also meant they dealt with dead animals, something that a Jew would not have done. Why is this important? It is important because this is yet another sign that Peter is beginning to see the very extraordinary nature of the times in which he is living. This is truly remarkable. And it is within this context that Peter is given a vision, a vision having to do with animals and eating. In verses 11 and 12, Peter sees a sheet on which, the Bible says, all sorts of animals were found. And this sheet is lowered, and a voice simply says, Peter, kill and eat. As John Stott said, the sheet had, in quote, a mixture of clean and unclean creatures calculated to disgust any Orthodox Jew. This was disgusting for him to see a mixture of clean and unclean animals. In other words, this would have been one of the most culturally insensitive things a Jew could have been told to do. Hence, Peter's immediate reply in verse 14 By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, Peter's refusal reveals the, the heart of the issue. As a Jew, Peter held to strict Old Testament dietary restrictions in which certain animals were considered to be unclean, beyond reach for a Jew. So let us consider that when we think of his answer. He was not defiant as if he was willingly disobeying God or the voice. Rather, and most likely, Peter saw this vision as a test, at least at first. He probably thought to himself, God is testing me through this vision, and the only way I know how to pass the test is by refusing to eat that which God has clearly said is unclean. So there is a certain level of innocence in Peter when he sees this vision. He wanted to be a faithful Jew. So he says, no, no way. I can't do that as a Jew. I can't not do that. But in order to confirm that this was a settled matter and that a firm message was being conveyed to Peter's Jewish mind, the whole event happened how many times? Well, the Bible says in verse 16, three times, three times. So let me give you the summary of Peter's vision. Here's the summary. Peter, a fundamental change has taken place. A fundamental change has taken place. Kill and eat. Here and for the first time, Peter hears the words in verse 15. 
a shocking statement for Peter. What God has made clean, do not call common. Keep in mind that all of this is taking place to prepare Peter for what's about to happen. He sees the vision. He is confused. He doesn't understand why he's told to kill and eat animals that were known to be unclean to the Jewish mind. But now things are about to start falling into place. As soon as the vision is taken up, we come to the second point, the clarifying encounter. The clarifying encounter. And this happens in verses 17 through 33. What is the summary of this encounter? Peter begins to understand, or Peter begins to see. So in the midst of this confusion, which is real, while he was deeply perplexed because of the vision Who shows up at the tanner's house? Three men show up at the tanner's house. And please notice why they showed up. Yes, of course, in verse 8, we are told that Cornelius sent them, because that's what Cornelius was told to do. But there is someone greater than Cornelius behind it all. Look at verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision... The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Who said that? The Spirit. First, don't miss the fact that the Spirit spoke directly to Peter, confirming once again, brothers and sisters, that the Spirit is not an impersonal force or energy. The Spirit is a he a divine person with a will who, just like the Father and the Son, operates sovereignly. Brothers and sisters, salvation is Trinitarian. No Trinity, no salvation. But second, consider what the Spirit says to Peter in verse 20. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. Speaking of the three men. For I have sent them, the Spirit sent them. Notice that it is the Spirit himself who is now helping Peter connect the dots. Now, are you seeing how? As soon as Peter is told in the vision, you can now eat the unclean animals, as soon as he's told this, three, quote-unquote, unclean Gentiles. As soon as he's told you can eat unclean animals now, Three unclean Gentiles show up looking for him, and the Spirit tells Peter, you can now hang out with them. I myself sent these three unclean Gentiles to you. You can now hang out with them. Do you see the progression that is taking place in the book of Acts? Let's recap for a moment. First, Peter sees the Jews receive the Spirit during Pentecost. Impressive, but not that surprising. They were the people of God after all. Then he sees the Hellenist receive the Spirit. Now, that's a bit more surprising, but not extremely so. But then Peter sees the Samaritans receive the Spirit. Now, that's way more astonishing. That is crossing a line that Peter did not see coming. And then after witnessing All of that, Peter is told in a vision to kill and eat unclean animals. You see what's happening. The revelation given to Peter keeps escalating. Think concentric circles, concentric circles. 
God blesses the Jews, then the Hellenists, then the Samaritans, and then he is told to eat forbidden animals. This is like a cultural, social, and theological bomb that's about to blow up in his face. And it is at this point that three unclean Gentiles appear, and Peter is beginning to see what this is all about. Long story short, Peter goes with these three Gentile men to Caesarea, the Bible says, where Cornelius was. And Peter does the unthinkable. In verse 25, we are told that Peter entered Cornelius' house. That was a big no-no for a Jew. But by this point, Peter knew enough to know that something massive was happening and that many of his preconceived, exclusively Jewish ideas were to give way to something better and new. And take a look at verse 25. Very important verse there. What did Cornelius do as soon as he saw Peter? The Bible tells us that he fell down at his feet and did what? Worshipped him. What does that tell you about Cornelius? It tells you that Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he did not really understand who God was. It shows both Cornelius' readiness to know the truth, while at the same time his ignorance of the truth. So Peter stops him, of course. Now, as Peter goes into the Gentile house, likely for the first time in his life, the Bible says in verse 27 that he found many persons gathered. That's an important aspect as well because God wasn't just working with Cornelius but with many other Gentiles as well. And here, Peter explains why this is such a history-making moment. Consider verse 28 where he tells his Gentile audience, That you yourselves, he says, Peter says to the Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. This is a big deal. In other words, Peter says, you guys know that I shouldn't even be here according to Orthodox Jewish tradition. This, what we're doing right now, this is strictly prohibited, forbidden. But then Peter demonstrates in the same verse that things are beginning to click in his mind. In the second half of verse 28, Peter says, I know this is forbidden. I know this is, I should not even be here, but God has shown me that I should not call any animal unclean. He doesn't say animal. Wasn't the sheet about animals? Now you see, he's beginning to understand what the vision was about. But God has shown me, shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter got it. The vision wasn't so much about the food after all, as much as it was about people. The ones he knew as unclean, namely the entire non-Jewish world. The vision Peter received, which was massively earth-shattering for him and thoroughly perplexing at first and confusing, finally yielded the fruit that was intended to produce in his thinking. Peter's vision led to our third point, which is the definitive conclusion. 
the definitive conclusion. Verses 34 through 35, what is the definitive conclusion that Peter reaches at this moment? The gospel is for all without distinction. The gospel is for all without distinction. Truly and fundamentally shocking for a Jewish man. For his entire life, think about this for a moment. For his entire life, Peter thought God was only interested in one people group known as the Jews. But this was only a prejudice that was developed through the years. Yes, the Jews were a chosen race. Yes, God had set them apart. And yes, God even destroyed other nations in the Old Testament times for the sake of Israel. But make no mistake, the plan from the beginning always included all nations. Or as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the ends of the earth. What was different about Israel? What was different about Israel is that through them, through this particular nation, God would bless the rest of the nation. Israel was the vessel of blessing for the rest of the world, and this was always plan A. And that truth, hidden for ages in God, Peter is now beginning to understand. His mind is blown. Truly, truly blown. God always had a plan for the nations after all. I could say it like this. What Peter is learning through what he has seen and heard, including his vision at the Tanner's house, is this. The Jews of the Old Testament, the Jews of the Old Testament were a small sampling of God's worldwide electing love. They were a small sampling of God's worldwide electing love. God chose and elected Israel to be his treasured people in the Old Testament in order to eventually use them to bring into his fold his elect people from every tribe and language and people and nation so that out of the two, Jew and Gentile, God would make one people called the church. So Peter's ethnocentric world, Peter's ethnocentric world was shattered to pieces and it was recreated as a multi-ethnic world in which God's electing love is no longer confined to one group known as the Jews. Rather, now all can come in, Jew and Gentile alike. That was the vision. What a moment for Peter. What a moment for Cornelius, and what a moment for his family, and eventually what a moment for us. That's why we're here. But we need to ask ourselves one question that was lingering in everyone's minds, and it should be lingering in ours as well. The question is, how can this be? How can centuries upon centuries of ethnic distinction and even hostility be brought to an abrupt end as demonstrated by the fact that now Peter is standing inside a Gentile home, speaking to a Gentile audience. What can possibly be strong enough to create this seemingly impossible reality? And here we come to the heart of it all. Our next point, the saving message. The saving 
message, verses 36 through 43. And what is the summary of the message? A cross, an empty tomb, and judgment. Having received his perplexing vision, having experienced this very unusual encounter with Gentiles, and having reached his definitive conclusion that the gospel is for all, Peter now essentially tells these Gentiles the central reason why this is actually happening to them. All these rather confusing events are explained by a single person, Jesus. It all begins in verse 36. Notice what Peter says in verse 36. As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What is the critical word there? Well, Jesus created what humans could not produce. Jesus created what humans could not produce, namely, peace. Peace. Now consider with me the five words with which Peter explains the uniqueness of Jesus. Anointing, death, resurrection, judgment, and forgiveness. First, in verse 38, according to verse 38, Jesus was anointed by God as demonstrated by his power to do what? To heal and to deliver people from the power of the devil. Through his miracles during his life and through his demonic deliverances, Jesus established the truth that he came from God to bring God's kingdom on earth and to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus can grant peace because he came from God and was filled with the Spirit. Second, according to verse 39, Jesus was also put to death. And this is Peter's message to the Gentiles. He was put to death. Notice that Peter does not elaborate much further than this, although in verse 43, he brings everything to a climax. But he does remind the Gentiles of the fact that the Lord Jesus died at the hands of the Jews. He did die as a historical fact. But then Peter seems eager to get to his next truth. Third, according to verse 40, Jesus not only died, but he was raised from the dead. And this is the first time Peter is preaching the gospel to a Gentile audience. Not only was he raised, but he was raised as proven by the ones who actually saw him. The eyewitnesses like myself, says Peter. It is also a historical fact. Fourth, according to verse 41, Jesus not only died and rose again, but Jesus, this man from Nazareth, is the judge of the living and the dead, meaning all of humanity, no exceptions, falls under his lordship and his prerogative to judge. Both living and dead will all stand before his presence one day. Now, at the risk of creating unmitigated fear, Peter brings in his fifth truth, namely forgiveness of sins. In verse 43, yes, he is the judge, and he will judge the living and the dead. But what is also true is that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Christ, there is no condemnation. So there you have it, Cornelius. This is what God commanded me to preach to you, says Peter. That's why I'm here, says Peter. Jesus made this meeting possible. 
You, Cornelius, because of Jesus, are no longer unclean. But through faith in the name of Jesus, you are in fact my brother. Shocking words coming from a Jew speaking to a Gentile. Because of Jesus, you are my brother. You're no longer unclean. Jesus died for Jew and Gentile alike. Now it all makes sense, Peter says. And all of this brings us to the grand finale, right? The climax of it all. The last section, verses 44 through 48, the greater works. The greater works. All shall be blessed by the Spirit. When Jesus said that believers would do greater works than his in John chapter 14, verse 12, he connected that statement to his ascension. Why is that? Well, Jesus himself provides the answer later on in John chapter 16, verse 7, where he said, It is to your advantage that I go away, that I go to the Father. For if I do not go away, who wouldn't come? The Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now that the Lord Jesus has accomplished his work in his flesh by dying and rising again, the same Lord ascended in his glorified body in order to send the omnipresent Spirit who now applies the redemptive work of Christ, but he does so globally globally. Therefore, I believe that at least in parts, the greater works of which Jesus spoke refer to the globalization of the work of redemption by the power of the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And this is precisely what we see in verses 44 through 48. Through the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus anointed, dead, risen, judge, and forgiver of sins. Through that message, Peter is now instrumental in bringing salvation to a Gentile audience for the first time. And notice that this is essentially the same thing that happened to the Jewish audience. The Spirit's falling came with a sign. What was the sign? The same sign for the Gentiles and for the Jews. Tongues. They spoke in tongues. Hence the reaction of the Jews, who were also there with Peter. They could not possibly miss the fact that the Gentiles were now equally as welcomed as the people of God, just as they were. And now the Spirit has formally entered the Roman world through Cornelius and his family. Amazingly, through the simple proclamation of the name of Jesus, Peter is now participating in the greater works. Truly, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Praise God for his son. So that's the story. That's chapter 10. So let me give you a few lessons that we learn from this chapter a few lessons that we learn from this chapter. The first lesson is a lesson regarding our unity. Regarding our unity. What is the lesson that we learn regarding our unity? Here's the lesson. The gospel creates it. The gospel creates it. In other words, and I want you to really think about this. 
Christian unity is primarily Christian unity is primarily an indicative of the gospel and only secondarily an imperative. What I'm trying to say is this. Unity is not something we must create. Rather, it is something we keep because we already have it in Christ. Or we could say it like this. Before we seek to keep the unity, we must believe it. Who would have thought Christian unity is a matter of faith in the gospel? The command to keep the unity is rooted in the reality that Christ has already created that unity for us by his cross and through his spirit. Notice with me that Peter proclaimed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as historical and theological facts that actually accomplish unity. An important, important element. Our unity is a gift of the gospel. It is a blessing of the gospel. And we must remember this fact. The second lesson is a lesson regarding our hope. A lesson regarding our hope. What is the lesson? Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. After a rich man walked away from Jesus and having explained that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, rich man to enter the kingdom, the disciples asked in perplexity, then who can enter the kingdom? To which Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, what the story of Cornelius teaches us is that salvation is the work of God, not of men. So I ask you, are there Corneliuses in your own life? Are there people in your life that may seem far from the reach of the gospel? The story of Cornelius reminds us that nothing is impossible for God and no one is too far gone. So here's an invitation. Let us expect great things from God. That's my invitation. That's the invitation of the story. Let us expect great things from God. He can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. In 1816, right before departing to South Africa to take the gospel there, missionary Robert Moffat said to his parents in a letter, quote, I long to be engaged in the blessed work of saying to heathens, Behold your God, but do not think that the future scenes cast me down. No, behold, I go full of hope. End quote. So let me ask, are you full of hope? Do you believe how great is your God? How big is your God? Here's the third lesson that we learn from this story regarding our responsibility, regarding our responsibility. What is our responsibility? We are commanded to speak the gospel. Did you notice what the angel did not do when he showed up 
in front of Cornelius? Did you notice what he didn't do? He did not preach the gospel to Cornelius. He could have, but he didn't. There's only one reason for that. The privilege of speaking the words of life has been reserved for us. For us. It always amazes me that God could send angels all over the world to proclaim his message. And yet he sends us, weak, feeble people, to speak a mighty message of salvation through the gospel. This is our responsibility, brothers and sisters. Remember this, even though there are many wonderful uses for our words, at no other time are they more beautiful than when they are used to spread the knowledge of Christ. The next lesson is regarding our dependence. Regarding our dependence. And what is this lesson? Only the Spirit can bring life. Only the Spirit can bring life. Joel Beakey offered a wonderful summary of Acts 10 with these words, and I quote, When you consider the events of this chapter, we must see all of them as orchestrated by the Lord. God prepared the field, Cornelius and his family. God brought the sower of the seed, Peter. And God also sent the rain, the Holy Spirit, so that there could be a harvest, conversions. All the glory belongs to God and not to men. End quote. To paraphrase, apart from him, we can do nothing. And so I ask, my brother and sister, how dependent are you on the Spirit for everything in your life? How dependent are you on the Spirit as a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a worker, an elder, missionary, teacher, and whatever else? How dependent are you on the Spirit? Well, there's only one way to know, and this is by asking a follow-up question. One of the most practical yet revealing questions you could ever ask how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Show me a man or a woman who are praying constantly, and I will show you someone who depends on the Spirit. Let's turn to Colossians briefly, and we're almost done. Colossians chapter 4. Consider the need for prayer. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. This is what Paul told the, the Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Here it is, the mighty Apostle Paul, asking people to pray for him because he knew his need of the Spirit in his ministry. Prayer could be described in many ways, but here's one for you to think upon. Prayer is the soul's recognition of weakness. We pray because we need him. Here's the next lesson regarding our sin. Regarding 
our sin. What is the lesson? There's no one good. There's no one good. Let's deal with the elephant in the passage. I don't know if you've read the elephant in the, in the passage. Verses 34 and 35, what's up with that? Peter said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? In what way did Cornelius fear God, and in what ways was he acceptable to God? We have established the fact that Cornelius was not saved prior to hearing the gospel message. So what do we make of this? Well, first of all, people from all ethnicities, every nation, they can be saved, no matter ethnicity, no matter social status. That is a fact. But Cornelius teaches us something about the inner workings of salvation. God produced in him a fear. How do we explain the fear? Consider verses 31 and 32. I think here's the answer for us. What kind of fear was this? In verse 31, Cornelius recounts against, again what the angel told him and says, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And then look at verse 32. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon. What is the critical word there? Well, I think the critical word is in verse 32. Therefore. Therefore. Cornelius knew that his good works were not good enough. Therefore, he prayed to know what was needed to be saved. God then sent him, Peter, with the gospel of Jesus by which Cornelius was saved. If the story of Cornelius teaches us anything, brothers and sisters, is not universalism. Rather, it is this, there is no one good. Even an exemplary man like Cornelius needed something that only the gospel could provide, namely forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. This passage proves that our good works, quote-unquote, cannot and will not save anyone. There is no salvation apart from the message of the gospel. Cornelius gave alms and prayed, but he was not trusting in these things. He knew he was missing the main thing, forgiveness, which he desperately needed. And therefore, God sent Peter to tell him a message. He needed to hear what Peter had to say. But afterward, Cornelius could say, finally, it is well with my soul. And the final lesson is regarding our Savior regarding our Savior. What is the lesson? He still saves. He still saves. Do we believe this? That Jesus still saves sinners. On July 6, 1890, and speaking to Christians, Charles Spurgeon once said this, and I quote, our want of faith, or our lack, our want of faith has done more harm to us than all the devils in hell and all the heretics on earth. Some cry out against the Pope and others against agnostics, 
but it is our own unbelief which is our worst enemy. End quote. Do you believe that Jesus still saves, brothers and sisters? The world is not a lost cause. The world is not a lost cause. Because the world belongs to Christ. He purchased the world with its own blood, and his blood will not be wasted. So let us believe in this, that Jesus Christ still saves, and that the nations will one day come to him. And in the meantime, we keep preaching, we keep teaching, we keep speaking of his salvation. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for the time that you've given us to consider the story of Cornelius and how through the power of the gospel, a Jew was able to come and enjoy the most wonderful fellowship with someone that he thought at some point was unclean and how now they were both together Thank you for the unity that the gospel brings, which is supernatural. And help us, Lord, to have faith in this gospel, which is able to save. And we do pray, Father, for the conversion of the nations. We pray for your work to be done to the ends of the earth. And if you can use us for this end. Here we are, Father, send us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.